you last week were probably already gone when we had a very frightening episode happen up in the back of the choir uh, group that was here. Joy Hickson fell very ill at the end of the service last week, and the squad came and took her to the hospital and, and ran tests and things, and Lord's watched over her, and her test came back well. She's here with us this morning worshiping, and we want to continue to pray for God to have his hand at work in her life as well. Also, uh, to sing hallelujah this evening, I hope you make the time uh, to come back and be with us for our Christmas Eve service, one of my favorite services of the year. And I know that Donna and, and Miss Peggy have been working very hard on it, and I am looking forward to that at 6 o'clock this evening. And just as a way of saying thank you, uh, when that happened last Sunday, knowing that God puts the right people in the right place at the right time, uh, there were three nurses immediately up around Joy last week, and I don't want to leave anybody out. I think there are actually four, but you know who you were. And thank you for letting God work through you to take care of her last week as well. Well, we are in this series called The Way of Jesus, and tonight I'm going to finish it at the uh, Christmas Eve candlelight, but uh, I want to ask you to turn with me to the Gospel of John in the New Testament. You know, we're living in a very interesting period of time right now. The political climate, the economic drought has surfaced some things within our lives and our hearts, and for those out of work, it's been an especially difficult season of life. Uh, even for those that are employed, uh, they seem to be getting by in this uncertain period. And most people I find are somewhat unsettled. And there seems to be an almost low-grade fever uh, of hope in, in our country now and that something isn't, isn't quite right. Uh, today somehow feels different than, than it did before. Uh, my parents spent the first 10 years of their lives in the Great Depression of 1929-1939, and when they were married, employment in Kentucky was at 29%. And I remember hearing from them stories as they were growing up about people waiting in bread lines, long lines just to get free bread. Now, things aren't nearly as grim today as they were then. But there's a lot of questions people have and a lot of uncertainty about these days. We're involved in several wars and in very different ways from previous wars in America. Previously, the whole country would rally behind the war efforts, and now there are questions about what our international role really is. We have 15,000 troops right now in Afghanistan battling the Taliban, and President Trump has pledged to send more uh, to what Newsweek has called the forever war. Will it ever end? We have troops involved uh, in conflicts in Syria and Yemen and Africa, and uh, there's questions, are we about to go to war with Iran and North Korea? And so our times are, are different. We have this phenomenal medical care today, and regularly we will talk about uh, the way people seem to be healed and, and medical miracles that God does, and yet we're told that one out of three people will have to deal with cancer. Seventy percent of people will have to deal with heart disease this Christmas. The climate has changed and we face extremes of hot and cold and we can't come to terms on some global cooperation to deal with that. And there's uncertainty about America. President Trump came along saying, let's make America great again. And yet people today are still arguing about what does that mean? Or what does it look like to be, to be great? Now that's kind of big picture stuff, but there's also a very personal side to it as well. 
Uh, Amazon.com lists 138,000 self-help books. And they are all-time best list sellers this Christmas. People are looking in some way to improve their lives. Chris Gilboa wrote a book called The Art of Nonconformity. And the subtitle is How to Set Your Own Rules, Live the Life You Want, and Change the World. There's another book by Gretchen Rubin called The Happiness Project, or subtitled Why I Spent a Year Trying to Sing Every Morning, Clean Closets, Fight Right, Read Aristotle, and Generally Have More Fun in Life. And then there's my favorite by Jessica Pallington. What would Keith Richards do? Daily affirmations from a rock and roll survivor. Now, if you've ever seen a picture today of Keith Richards, just, just picture like a bulldog. That's kind of what he looks like now. There are all kinds of things out there offering solutions to us. We live in a time of uncertainty, and there's a question. What's coming? What's the future going to look like, and is there hope for it? And I want you to realize this morning, through the gospel and through God's word, that when Jesus came into this world, Jesus entered our world's uncertainty. Jesus' world was filled with it. He came into Palestine, an area that was under the thumb of Roman rule. And it was a daily grinding kind of reality and despair that resulted from this Roman oppression. And there were questions of life then as there are questions now. But Jesus came to bring answers for that. And I want to look in John chapter 1 in the first 18 verses. And I once knew a preacher that, that referred to this as the real Christmas story. And what he meant by that was we look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke as we've done in this series. And we talk about Joseph and Mary and Jesus and, and the shepherd and the angels. We talk about Herod and the wise men, and we discuss the meanings of those passages. But John, he's forthright. He tells us this is why Jesus came. He comes to bring life. He comes to be the answer. Jesus and his kingdom, they really are what hope is for this world. And in these first 18 verses, John gives an introduction to what will really be the rest of his gospel and they're some of the most important verses in all the Bible. And I want you to follow along with me in, in your scripture this morning as we go through this. In John chapter 1, let's look at the first three verses. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. Now, if you're reading that for the first time, uh, perhaps today, that might sound a little confusing. It might not make a lot of sense because of this term, the word. But the original listeners, the original readers of this understood exactly what it meant. You see, for them, the word was a philosophical term that meant the source of life. And the word here is used in reference to Jesus. And so if you, you, you want to have just a, a short course and you want to cut to the chase on this, substitute his name for the word. And what you would find is, in the beginning was Christ. And Christ was with God, and Christ was God. See, that is a clear statement here. Jesus is fully God. Now you and I today in the church, we talk about the Trinity about one God existing in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
And this very direct statement tells us that that baby that was born, that was placed in the manger 2,000 years ago, really was God. And everything else in John's gospel is based on that truth. These are the words and the actions of God in the flesh lived out through Jesus Christ. Jesus would say to Philip in John 14, 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And near the end of this book, Thomas would look at Jesus in John 20, 28, and he would proclaim, my Lord and my God. And I want you to notice in this text, it says he existed in the beginning. Now let's suppose today that you are 20 years of age. Where were you 25 years ago? Well, you weren't. (laughs) You You weren't even a twinkle in your mom and dad's eye. But it's different with Jesus. You see, before he was born into this world, he existed. Before the creation of this world itself, he existed because he is God. And what that means is just overwhelming. That means he understands how everything was made because he made it. He holds the original patent on all the things that we may even struggle with today. And we want to know what marriage is like. We want to know how relationships should be, how families should exist, how worship should be. God holds the patent on that. He knows intimately how everything works. And that means he's in the best position to solve the problems we have and to suggest the change that needs to take place. And if hearing those verses in John 1 kind of sounds like Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. If you think that sounds similar, I think you're right. In fact, I think the Holy Spirit had that in mind when he inspired it. Because in the beginning God created this world for his glory and for good. He made it to be his world. And then it was damaged by evil and by sin. But in the Gospels, Everything changes. When Jesus comes into this world, it it truly marks a new beginning. This is where the world truly starts all over again. And Christ comes to restore the brokenness, the relationship that we need with God to remake the world into what God intended. And Jesus stepped into the world's uncertainty. Look at verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Not only does he step into our uncertainty, Jesus came as light amidst the world's darkness. Isaiah 9-2 is, is one of my favorite prophecies that we hear at Christmas. It says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. One of the things you find about the Apostle John is he uses this vivid language of light and dark and death and life. I mean, his gospel is just full of those kinds of grand terms. And isn't that a great description of the world we live in? How many of you watch CNN? Or maybe you're like my in-laws and and you try to watch the news every night at 10 o'clock before you go to bed. Why do you put yourself through that? You know, uh, but, but if you do, you don't have to, to guess much to realize this is a dark world. 
You read page one of the Springfield New Sun, and every day it talks about the problems. And what this is saying is Jesus is the solution to the darkness. Because, friends, light always transforms darkness. In John 12, 46, Jesus said, I've come into this world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Think about what happens at your house when the power goes out. If you're like my family, you've got flashlights stationed at different places around the house. And and when the lights go out, you kind of go searching for them. And if your house is like mine, you go to reach for them. And they're not there because somebody has taken them and used them for something else. And they're not where they're supposed to be. Or you find them there and there's no batteries in it because somebody swiped the batteries out of the flashlights to run one of their games or something else. And so you're tripping and bumping into things, searching the house to find another flashlight or find a candle. But when you turn that flashlight on or you light that candle, it only takes a little bit of light to dispel the darkness. And it transforms the darkness. Jesus came to bring a new kingdom of his light into this world. And Paul said this, in Colossians 1.12, that we are to be people who are giving joyful thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in his kingdom of light. You see, his kingdom was one of ultimate light where he loved his enemies, where he welcomed them outsiders, where he rejected the pursuit of wealth and success as a means of worth. He flipped it all upside down and he taught things like Luke 12, 15, that our life doesn't consist in the abundance of our possessions. He just turned life upside down. Now this passage in John will also speak about John the Baptist that we spoke of about three weeks ago about how he prepared the way for Christ, and and we needed to be prepared for Christmas. John the Baptist was was really quite a a character. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 4, it describes him this way. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt about his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Wouldn't you love uh, to interview John the Baptist I mean, he was a playmaker, he was a newsmaker in his day, but, but wouldn't you like to just say, you know, John, that, that's a very interesting diet that you have there. I mean, locust, what exactly did your mother fix for you to eat when you were a little kid, okay, growing up? How did all this get started? You like locusts and wild honey? Well, let me tell you, we've got this thing called fruitcake at Christmas. You're going to love this, John, you know. And, and yet Jesus said, John the Baptist, he was one of the greatest people that ever lived. And yet, look in verse 8, John 1, 8. He himself, he was not the light. He only came as a witness to the light. Now, what is that all about? Why does he give John the Baptist that space? It's because as one of the greatest people that ever lived, as a representative of the apex, the best of humanity, it's set as a contrast to Jesus. He wasn't enough. If we could take those 138,000 self-help books and stack them up, we might end up with a stack about two and a half miles high. But you put Jesus next to that, and he is so qualitatively different. It's saying that that the the results, the, the solution to the problems of this world, they will never come from the best of the human sources. It will only come through Jesus Christ. 
And what, yet what do we do in those self-help books? And there might be some good. There might be some interesting things that we can learn from that. But we can look to the greatest scientists, the greatest philosophers. We can look at the, the greatest politicians, the greatest educators. But no human being will ever be able to solve our problems. Friends, when that child was born and Mary had her little lamb, the solution was only found in Jesus Christ. Look in verse 9 in our passage today. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. See, the next thing I want you to see is how the world's hostility is always exposed by the way of Jesus. The term world in the Bible is used in many different ways. Sometimes it's positive. Uh, sometimes it's used in a neutral way. Most often, though, when you see the word world in the Bible, it's used in a negative way. It's used to talk about a human race that has rejected its creator. It's the mindset that Paul spoke of in Romans 8, 7, where he said the mind governed by the flesh, it's hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. It's the mindset and the reality that we live in a world that is an open rebellion to God. The world that we live in is, is hostile to the things of God. You know, today, in, in a lot of public squares, you can go and you could put up a menorah, a symbol for the Jewish people, and no one will complain. But you put up a manger scene in that same public square, and you're going to find all kinds of, of trouble coming your way. You could put up a Christmas tree in your town square because it's a secular symbol. But, but Christianity today is discriminated against in this country in ways that are not true of other faiths. And it's not surprising. You see, if, if Herod rejected this baby Jesus because he was threatened by him, people today will be threatened by Jesus as well. I was listening uh, this past week to Dave Stone, who preaches down at Southeast in Louisville, Kentucky. And they had this program in the, in the community called Christmas Together. And what they did was they would have these groups of about 15 people, a mixture of adults and children, and they had these five stations set up. And these people would travel from station to station, and, and there would be little teaching times at each one. And so they would go to one, and they would have somebody there representing the angel and they would hear a little bit, move on, and then they would have somebody there as a shepherd, and then they'd move on, have somebody as an innkeeper, and then the last one they get to would be, uh, would be the, the Magi from the east. But right there at number four was Mary and Joseph and Jesus. And they had this young family in the, in the church that had a three-month-old baby that, that just played the part, and it was just so perfect. And they said, as these people came through, there was this one group that had this little seven or eight-year-old boy, and he was paying so much attention. All the kids were amazed because it wasn't a doll. It was actually a real baby, you know, that they could see there in the manger. But as the group left to go to the last station, this seven or eight-year-old came back to them, and he said to them these words. He said, I know that I'm from the future, <laughs> But your little baby's going to grow up, and someday he's going to die on a cross. Seven or eight years old, but he said, don't worry, he's going to save everybody from their sins. And this little seven, year, eight-year-old little boy went on to the next group. 
And the couple that were playing, Mary and Joseph, they were just kind of dumbstruck. It was as if this kid wanted to tip them off. Hey, you're going to go through this really painful time. But in the innocence of a child, he wanted them to know, hey, it's all going to be worth it. I love that. He got it. But this world is so hostile to Jesus. This is not a world where you can have open inquiry about it. And in spite of the rebellion and the hatred that this world heaps on Christ and Christianity, it's only two chapters later in John 3.16 that we find out God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. That story is told in part, I believe, in verses 12 and 13 of our passage for today. Look what it says there. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. One of the things I did in this passage that I was studying this week is, is I circled all the times the word all was in it. And I'm amazed how inclusive the love of God is. All who will receive him are involved in this. And then I think about the world we live in. You know, there's a lot of companies out there that, that you might want to work for, but you're never going to get hired there. I think of, of young people when they leave high school or, or between college and their master's or PhD, they send out their applications and anywhere from 50 to $150 to each of these schools. And, and then they just sit back and wait for the letters of acceptance to come in. And sometimes they don't get the school of their choices because you're not accepted everywhere. I think of a lot of colleges that give preferences uh, to children of alumni or to certain families of distinction. And sometimes you'll see in their newsletter They'll have a picture of a freshman on the front page and it'll say how they're, they're third or fourth generation from this family that's, that's come to the school. And the reality is if you're not part of that family, if you don't have a degree in relativity, you're not likely going to get into that school. And if you're not part of the family, if you're not part of the right circle, well, your, your connections might be limited in this world. But that's not the way it is with God. That's not the way it is with the amazing love of our Heavenly Father. It doesn't matter what family you do or don't come from. It doesn't matter what your parents were like. It doesn't matter how deep and dark some of the alleys you've been to in this life are. If you want to come to Christ more than anything else, you know, verse 12 and 13 talk about you've got to believe and you've got to, you've got to receive Natural descent doesn't count. It's deliberate faith. It's a deliberate choice. I need Christ, and I'm going to trust in him. You see, when you reach the place when you sense your inadequacy, when, when you sense your lack of meaning in life, and you're ready to say, I need something else. I need God. That's when you find Emmanuel, God with us. He's right there. And then in verse 14 of the story comes one of the most important verses, I think, in John's gospel. John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Here's the last point I want you to catch. God came in the flesh to show us life's ultimate answer. God took on a human body. He took on 
our flesh. The message paraphrase says it this way, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And literally that was true. Mary and Joseph had neighbors, so Jesus really did move into the neighborhood. You know, imagine in, in your neighborhood if Oprah Winfrey decided to move on to your street with her family. And you think, oh man, traffic is going to be horrible. Uh, no, no, this is Oprah Winfrey living just like you. No details, no entourage, no limo, no, no private airplane. She drives a 1997 Ford Windstar with sliding doors that don't work, okay? Uh, Oprah Winfrey, she shovels her own driveway. She and her first husband, Dr. Phil, you know, they shop at the... No, that's, that's not true. Uh, I always thought that, though. But uh, anyway, they shop at the neighborhood Kroger, and she lives just like you. Well... That's unthinkable, right, for us, that Oprah Winfrey is ever going to live on our street. It's unlikely, it's ridiculous to even contemplate that. But what does it mean for God to move into our neighborhood? See, what he did then was he allowed for us in the person of Jesus to see him, to see how he lived, to see how this life was supposed to be lived in this world. And there's that powerful phrase, full of grace and truth. Now listen, it's easy to blow by that. Please, don't do that. <laughs> Full of grace and truth. Because nobody in this world is like that. Human nature takes you to one extreme or to the other. There are people in this world that are wonderfully accepting, but they have no standards. Everything goes, so it's okay with them. Then there are people, on the other hand, who are very hardline people, they're full of principles and ideals, but they are hard to get along with. Only Jesus perfectly matches grace and truth. In just a few chapters into John's gospel, he's going to tell the story about a woman who was brought to Jesus, who was caught in adultery. And the Jewish leaders publicly dragged this, this half-naked woman in front of them, and she is absolutely humiliated. And it's all laid out there publicly. And she stood before Jesus. His first words to her in John 8, 11 were, I don't condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. And then he said, go now and leave your life of sin. You see, that's grace and truth. The grace was that he accepted and welcomed her and cared for her and loved her. The truth was, don't keep messing up your life like this. Don't keep messing up the lives of other people like this. Live a different life. And so this beauty of a life full of grace and truth is a life we're called to live. And then he throws in that word glory. We see in him the glory. And I think of the Jewish readers and the Jewish listeners who heard that. Where did they go to see the glory of God? They went to the temple. Distinctly, they went to the, the Holy of Holies. Even then, it was just the high priest one time a year that would go behind the curtain before that glory of God. It wasn't something that everyone could see, but can you imagine what it meant that in the person of Jesus Christ, we can all see the glory of God. We can see, we can touch, we can hear. What a profound statement that is. And then in verse 18, it concludes... No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father has made him known. 
Jesus, a baby in a manger, showed us God in a way that we could see, observe, understand, and live to become like. So I do not hesitate to say to you today, Jesus is the answer. And I realize the temptation is to say, well, that's kind of bumper sticker theology, isn't it? Because well-intentioned and well-thinking people in this world are going to ask you, if Jesus is the answer, well, what's the question? Well, friends, if it's any question to do with life and godliness and truth, he really is the answer. And I don't mean to make that sound as if I'm putting it in some neat and tidy package because it really is a challenge to live that out. It is a challenge to surrender all of our lives to him so that he fills the depths of our soul and he flows out of us into the fabric of the culture and transforms the world around us. He is the answer. I realized that this year saw a lot of change and we need to see more. And in the world, there are many kinds of answers to, to human problems. I don't know about you, I'm tired of hearing the political answers it seems like the political answer is a cyclical one. It's always the same. Throw the people in office out, put new people in. A few years later, they tell you to do the same thing. It'll all be fine. It never works. There are people then that decide, well, if I just can have enough money, I'll be happy. And that's all that really matters. If I can just be happy where I am. Uh, I visited Florida once, twice. Uh, but I've never intended to stay there for very long. Cheryl's sister lives a part of the time now down in Florida, and she loves it there. But there is a lot of stuff. Uh, some of you, I know you're snowbirds in Ohio, and you'll be going there soon too. There's a lot of stuff about Florida that I, I'm just not comfortable with. Uh, crocogators and mosquitoes the size of woodpeckers, you know, all that other sort of stuff. Uh, yes, I said crocogators, because I can't tell you the difference between the two. But, but if you go to Sanibel Island, or Key West, or South Beach, and Ocean Boulevard, You'll see restaurants uh, that are four or five star. You'll see Ferraris parked out front. Uh, obviously, there's, there's a, a lot of wealth in that area. And I heard about a youth minister once who was visiting with his wife. And they were kind of walking the shop road. They're going in and out of places. And they walked into one that was a jewelry store. And the youth minister said, we walked by a case. And there was this, I mean, just this beautiful bracelet there that was obviously, uh, it would have absolutely sparkled as we walked past. It was obviously diamonds, and I was just pausing and looking at it, at the beautiful colors as it reflected, and the sales girl, the sales lady, saw me looking at it, he said, and she came over, and she pulled it out of the case, and she, she took it and laid it in the palm of, of his hand, and it, it really was beautifully made jewelry, and it was about an inch thick, just encrusted with diamonds. And his wife was sitting next to him, and she was starting to breathe heavily and pant because she thought maybe he was going to purchase it for her. And then the youth minister asked, uh, do you mind my asking, how much does this bracelet cost? And she said, well, it's on sale right now. It's only $144,000. He said, I started to tremble. <laughs> and immediately I thought about that old saying, Beautiful to look at, beautiful to hold. If you drop and break it, it's just been sold. Uh, and he said, you know, we, we could buy a house with this money that we would buy this bracelet. Well, this is ridiculous. And yet, even though we think that way, we play the lottery, hoping to hit it big, hoping this big strike is just going to bring us what we need in life. 
There's all kinds of solutions. There's religious solutions. One of the fastest growing religions in the world today is radical Islam. Now, I know that there are Muslims in America that are just as horrified by the terrorist acts that are happening around the world. But Islam is really a a works-based religion. The idea is, at the end of this life, if you do more good than bad, then you get to go to heaven. It's it's called the 51% method. And how do you know you did more good than bad? You don't get a quarterly report card. You don't get an annual review. So how can you really be sure that when you die, you go to heaven? And radical Islam simply says, you know, if you die, if you give up your life in jihad, then immediately you're guaranteed entrance into paradise. You see, there's all kinds of options, all kinds of answers that are trying to solve the human dilemma that are philosophical and quasi-spiritual. But here's here's something completely different, and here's the truth. The word became flesh and moved into our neighborhood. You see, with Jesus following Jesus, it's not an ideology. It's not a faith system. It's a relationship of love. We have in our faith something nobody else has. Jesus is a person to love. Christianity is not a true system to store away in our heads. It's a relationship with our creator to be cherished. And when everything went wrong that could go wrong in this world, he came into the world so that we could see him and touch him and watch him. He came as a baby because babies are irresistible. I think babies are non-threatening. When you see a baby, you don't think about an awesome and intimidating God. But then we have a snapshot of him growing up and later we see him as an adult and he would hold children and he would place his hands on them to bless them. We see him seeking the outcast, touching the untouchable, loving his enemies, accepting and healing brokenhearted people and we see him giving up his life. You see in Christ the true nature of God. And friends, if you really want to be drawn to Christmas if you really want to know, know joy to the world, you've got to know the Lord that's come. You've got to be drawn to love him. You've got to be drawn to surrender to him and pass on this light of life. Now, my concern for this church and for this world is that in these last days, and I believe we're living in the last days, there's too many people sitting on the fence. They're living with one foot in the world and and one foot is all about faith and being with Jesus. Pretty much people who believe in Jesus but are are still hanging on to other stuff in this world. And friends, it doesn't work that way. Receiving him means being all in with Jesus. And if you've ever been on the fence, if you're on the fence now, then you really need to be both feet in Christ now. And if you're dealing with a despairing heart today, You need to know that on the other side of Christmas, your despair will not overwhelm God's great promises. There is a deliverer, and his name is Jesus Christ. I want to close this morning by telling you the story of a little child's group. And one of the things that sometimes children do in a Sunday school or in in little parties is they play Christmas bingo. And instead of calling out numbers from a bingo card, uh, the card you get uh, that you receive has something on it to do with Christmas. And maybe the caller will call out manger, 
and then you'll mark that on your card. Or, or angel or shepherd, and, and you'll mark that on your card. Well, there was one mother sit, sitting with her child one day playing Christmas bingo, and she noticed that she had four spots marked, and she only needed one more to win. And she said, sweetie, you're doing great. What do you need? And this little girl said loud enough for everyone to hear, Mommy, all I need is Jesus, and I win. And I know it may sound simplistic, but here's the gospel. All you need is Jesus, and you win. For some of you this morning, it's time. The greatest gift for Christmas that you can give to your heavenly Father is your life. The waters are behind us. They've been stirred. They're ready to receive you this morning, to wash away the old life, to receive the new. Maybe you're looking for a church home. And today is the day to say, I'm ready to be part of this church family. Not just to be here on Sunday morning and worship. I'm ready to roll up my sleeves, and I'm ready to pray for this church. I'm ready to put some holy sweat into the kingdom work that's taking place here. And I want to invite you to come as well. But before you do, I'm going to ask you to stay with me this morning, and let's pray. Would you stay with me this morning? Heavenly Father, it's the old song. In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. We know that all we really need in this life to win is you. And you said if we sought for you, we would find you. If we searched with all our heart, Paul would speak to the people at Athens and tell them, you're not very far from us. Father, I know in this world of rebellion that it's not you that has pushed us away. We've pushed you away. Father, Christmas is a time for embracing you. It is a time to renew the faith that we claim that, Father, there is nothing that we want to stand between you and us. That if there's a, a, a rededication, if there's a, a step that needs to be taken across that line, then today is the day while it's still called today. We call it Christmas Eve, and, and Lord, that means that there's just a sense of expectation and anticipation and promise. The greatest promise of all is to have a heart that's cleansed, that's made new. Father, you hold a patent on every single person in this room today, physically, mentally, spiritually, and you know we were made to love you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and all our strength. So whatever we intend within our heart today, give us the courage and give us the faith to respond to you. In Jesus' name.